Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthro to UX podcast. I'm here today with Carl Haas. Carl is currently a UX writer at The Weather Company, which is an IBM business. Before that, he was in content strategy and research roles, as well as copywriting roles, and comes to us today with a unique educational background because he has a PhD and an MA in ethnomusicology, which we were just briefly chatting about before starting to record because of our shared interest in music. So, Carl, thanks for coming on. Would you mind sharing with everybody how you came into anthropology? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'd love to, sure. Um, well, I guess I'll start at the beginning. I, I studied music as an undergrad, and my goal um, was to be a performer, um, a percussionist. I played drums and all manner of orchestral instruments in uh, different genres, and uh, I studied at Montana State University, which is sort of a, like a music education program, but I had essentially no interest in being like a band teacher, which is what most of those people were training to do. Um, so I just sort of, I moved to Montana because I wanted to live in Montana and that was a program I could do. I could play music and, um, and I did that and I moved to Boston to sort of do a little more training and try to make it in the big city as it were. Um, and then, uh, I played around and I got really into music from other parts of the world. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and is about a sort of cookie cutter, normative white mainstream community, as you could imagine. And moving to Boston was a really great way to interact with other people from around the world and from Cuba, from Mexico, from, India and just many different places. And so I studied sacred drumming from Cuba. I studied frame drumming from India. I studied, um, I mean, what else? Tabla a little bit. And so I got really, really interested in other kinds of music than just Western pop and rock and classical. And what I was finding is that I was really interested in like the stories behind the music, like what where did this music come from and who were the people who did it and why did they do it? They were really fascinating stories to me. So learning bata drumming from the Santeria tradition of Cuba, like learning all about the Orishas and the stories behind them. And they all had colors and they are all associated with different parts of nature and the rituals that um, they were uh, being played for with the, the, the spirit, I don't want to say trancing, but the possession ceremonies. And um, it was just really fascinating. And I just played around town a lot. I freelanced and I just was, um, was doing a lot of dance class accompaniment. So I was lugging like djembes and panderos and different kinds of world music instruments. Um, and I got to a point in my career where I realized I wasn't going to move to New York or LA or become like a rock star. And I wasn't going to hang out in clubs all night because I didn't think it would be a particularly healthy way to live my life. And I, had to do something 
And I decided, you know what, ethnomusicology seems really interesting. Let's do a master's in that and see where that leads. And so I went to Tufts University, and my goal had been to write a master's thesis on, on Santeria drumming. And the second semester I was there, there was a guest artist from Ghana who came, who was a, uh, a talking drum player. So that's the drum that you put under your arm and you can squeeze the ropes and it changes the pitch. And those drums align with language and they tell very detailed stories. And there were hundreds and hundreds of pieces of music that told stories of chiefs and wars and different types of historical events and i got really interested in it and that summer i went and i lived with him for uh the summer and i basically got bit by the bug between ghana and and studying the origin of music and the cultural context of music and i just totally fell in love with ethnography as a practice um and then fast forward just a little bit i went to Boston University to do my PhD, and I was affiliated with the African Studies Center there, and so I studied anthropology, um, I studied art history, I studied uh, historiography and African history, um, and I just tried to you know, pull in as many different influences into my thinking and my training as I could, um, and that's how I got into ethnomusicology, and that's sort of my path of being sort of as interdisciplinary as I could, grounded in and the way that people make music and why they make music and how do they understand the music and how do they feel the music and why are they still playing this music that's hundreds of years old and not particularly uh, remunerative and not particularly a lot of status with it. Um, and just trying to figure out what's going on in these places or this one particular place in Northern Ghana. Um, and I mean, I'm still obsessed with it, actually. <laughs> That's I don't know if that's the long version or the short version, but that's, <laughs> that was my path in. With the studies that you engaged in, what did you learn about using music to communicate, you know, something like a story, um, you know, about a group of people? And I guess you know I don't want to create a two-part question here, but I'm just wondering, like, should we be considering, you know, the use of audio more? like even in UX than we are today, you know, to sort of communicate certain things. So I'll start with the first part. So what did I learn? Um, so the drumming repertoire is the main rhythms are linked to words and they're historical words. Generally they're praise, they're praising somebody or somebody's ancestor or, and or recounting events in which they did heroic or great things, which is also a praise. Um, most people don't understand the language. In fact, they understand the language, but not the drum language. And even many of the drummers don't really know what they're saying all of the time. And so every, every family that's affiliated with the chief will know the rhythms that go with their family. And they may well know the words because somebody told them at some point. But it functions more like an icon or something, right? It represents these words that somebody might know, or they know that it's saying something. And so it's the number of people who can actually communicate to each other with a drum is relatively low, but the number of people who know that there are words and even some of the words affiliated with their family or their town is high. So it's more, it's less about the actual, like, what is it saying and the fact that it's saying something and that it's worth knowing, right? And I think 
should we be using audio more? I think the short answer is yes. I think um, we should be moving away from text generally. We should be moving more towards visual icons and oral icons and using the full sort of breadth of, of multimedia that's available to us. I mean, the, we're limited only by our imaginations at this point. And then our, our sensory, our ability to take in sensory input, depending on our abilities and disabilities. But um, yeah, we should be doing more with sound and the fact that it can represent things. We just the, like we look at a, a magnifying glass and we know it's the search, right? Um, I think we could be doing more in a lot of ways. And I think that even going back to scholarship, I mean, we're still relying on text hmm. for some terrible reason. Yeah, no, and, and it, of course, there's um, you know, there's a lot that audio can communicate, such as without again trying to make this like too much of an audio podcast, like depth, right? Literally, like dimensionality, right? We, we, you can kind of create, and you know, good songs have a fair amount of that, um, and so, you know, I'm not sure how this relates yet, but it it seems like we're we're not taking advantage of it, and I don't mean necessarily just. Um, like in a technology product that there's some kind of like little bell that goes off or something fun. But I, I mean, even, um, you know, even more audio in terms of anthropological scholarship, kind of like you're saying, or even in the work that we're delivering internally when, I mean, of course I know we, we record participants and we often use those kind of that audio, but I'm just wondering, can we take that further as well? But we'll come, maybe come back to that. So, so anyway, you graduate, Essentially, you know, you're studying the the culture of music, if you will, right? So, the that is a bit of a departure from UX, um, or at least it seems that way on the surface. Though, of course, the methods, the theories, you know, the, the sort of knowledge, the way you approach things, of course, directly relates to UX. But it seems a bit away from UX in the beginning when somebody might hear it. But let's kind of like figure out the story of how you got, you know, from that to, you know, earlier you're doing copywriting and content strategy that was grounded in research. So how did you first make that leap? And then we'll kind of tie it to UX. Okay, so let's pick up. I graduated with my PhD in 2016. Um, I was teaching part-time and then later full-time at Berkeley College of Music. And then I was teaching at MIT in like a 0.6% role or something like that, which is this great gig. And then I got a visiting assistant professorship at Middlebury College, which was a one-year temporary but full-time gig, which was amazing. Um, and then the academic path just sort of closed off for a couple of reasons, one of which was just the fact that there were fewer jobs available than there were people to take them as it is for all of us in this this world and then um then with covid hitting everything just sort of fell off and uh i needed something else to do and i got a job a local job up here in vermont in the burlington area at a uh, a tech company copywriting and it was not something i was especially keen to start doing but i needed a job um, and I figured I'll do this while I figure out what I'm, what else I need to do. And I also knew that I needed to stop, uh, thinking about moving wherever somebody will have me, which was sort of what you have to do as an academic. My kids are getting older. They're asking me, where are we going to live next year? And I'm telling them, I don't know, which, uh, begins to wear on one. Like, uh, so I was like, all right, look, I got to get off this academic wheel. I got a job writing content. And I found that uh, I didn't find it particularly exciting, but I found that it was a bit of a superpower. I could write it. And then when we were 
I could edit it very, very quickly. And having, uh, you know, edited and given feedback on hundreds, maybe even thousands of student essays, right? And sort of having written in different genres as an academic, as so many of us do, it was just a thing that I could naturally do. Um, and then one day I was having a Zoom call with a colleague who was a historian, and he told me, oh, um, I'm looking at the jobs in uh, UX. And I said, what's UX? <laughs> I had never heard of it. Like a year and a half ago, I, this was not a phrase I knew. Um, he's like, oh, it's user experience. It's when you design an app and they need to test and see if anybody likes it or not. And that was sort of what <laughs> I was told. And I was like, oh, I hate when apps don't work or, or like I, <laughs> I'm a problem finder and a problem solver. So I just started learning as much as I could about it. And then I contacted the UX department at the tech company I was working at. And I said, hey, can I get some experience working with you? And they said, sure, you can run a couple of studies. And then in the meantime, we don't have a UX writer and we need copy sometimes. And we don't have, there's no consistency with the voice. There's no real sense of what to do. There's a bunch of visual designers who may or may not be as talented with the written word. So essentially they gave me some gigs to do some research and I gave them free UX writing. And I learned that actually I, I could do that too. I could look at a body of research and figure out what, you know, concerns and questions that users had and write things that address them in as few <laughs> words as possible, which is sort of the long and short of UX writing, I guess. Um, and the opposite of academic writing. And the opposite of academics, right. So you, you're, instead of making something simple, complicated, you're making something complicated, simple, um, or you're trying to. And so that was my way in. I said, oh, this is a thing I can do. And I enjoy it. It's problem solving. It's, uh, it's different things coming at you. It's project based, which, you know, I've, you know, I'm ADD. So to do the same thing again and again, is just like torturous. And to be able to solve a problem, to have a new thing and next you know, an hour later, somebody else pings me with a question about this. And um, this fits my brain and what I like to do. Um, so that's how I got into it. And that's how I got to this job at the Weather Channel was the same, basically the same story. Got it. So your previous titles, um, copywriter, content strategist, was there any real difference between what you're doing then and what you're doing now, uh, other than the title? You know, there is. And sometimes that's a great question because uh, if you scour the internet for jobs in UX writing, you'll see all three of those sometimes. And sometimes it will matter and sometimes it will not. So as a content writer, um, our client was auto dealerships who needed S SEO, uh, search engine optimized content. And they would the request would come in, somebody wants to sell Ford F-150s in this town. And so you write content that had those words in it and that made sense and was grammatically correct and legally compliant. Um, and so that was content writing, which was not for me. And then content strategy, uh, which I still do part-time for uh, Rebel Base, it's largely, you know, what, it's a startup. So everything is, what do we need to do next? What do we need to do next? What are people going to want? Where's some value? What can we... Uh, pitch? What can we sell? How can we serve the people we've already got? Um, so it's a lot more thinking about not just what am I, what are the words I'm going to write, but what are the types of things that need to be written and when should they come and uh, sort of overview stuff, but also still writing. 
and then doing the UX writing for the weather company, the weather channel, which is the weather company is the weather channel digital presence where the weather channel itself is actually a different entity, the television station. So writing for them, it's error messages. It's uh, different kinds of documentation. It's microcopy, a lot of microcopy and um, thinking about, again, how to take something that's kind of complex and fitting it into 163 characters and, you know, really thinking about a really large user base. There's tens of millions of people using this app. Uh, we're in a lot of different countries. And even within the U.S., the thing that maybe we can talk about in a little bit, the thing that I really think about is this, you know, over half of American adults read at like a seventh grade or lower level. So I think 40 million American adults are illiterate or functionally illiterate. They all need to know what the weather is and they need to know what's going on with their phone when like something isn't going right. So how do I make words that are very few in number make sense to as many people as, as possible? So that's the, the difference in the positions I've had anyway. Yeah, thanks. And obviously, the, so to what you just said at the end, that's quite the task, even though it might seem on the surface easy. You know, as somebody who is in the industry and has to write content for things that we build, both on you know, in terms of like web content, you know, in terms of sort of positioning, as well as in the app, you know, it is it is a struggle. Um, so one thing that I would say that you know, I've probably not done well enough on is really testing out a lot of that language. Oftentimes the testing is around like the overall experience, if you will, but, you know, I'm not doing necessarily specific testing on just language, only language like in context of everything else. So how do you go about maybe first like researching, you know, something more generative or discovery like and then you know maybe we can get to a second part of like how do you go about more like usability testing of once you've written some copy how do you how do you test that it's effective um the first part of the battle is just convincing uh, a team that's working in very short sprints that the content itself needs to be tested as for for legibility and comprehension um and so they've had, at this point, limited success. But part of some of our user testing is trying to figure out that the people who read this, A, were they able to go through the flow and understand it, but then at the end, tacking on. So how did you understand this copy and what did you think it meant? Um, and that's a work in progress. We haven't had any chances to look at the Weather Channel. I have not yet had a chance to just run tests on copy. So it's always flow with copy and then task one is the flow, task two is the flow, task three, what do you understand this to mean? It's sort of, and I'd like to do a little bit more of, here's some copy, and then using some of my academic sort of professor chops to really get at, did you understand what this really was asking you to do deep down? And that's sort of to be determined for me right now. What I do use when I write anything, any, every sentence, every paragraph I write, I run through this great app called Hemingway. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. But it, um, it gives you a score and it tells you what grade level is the writing at and it sort of identifies sentences that may be too long or weak verbs or passive voice. And it's a great sort of, um, it's a great tool to use just to sort of make yourself aware, okay, the sentence has too many commas and clauses change it. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, of course, many of us today are using Grammarly for more grammatical uh, help, if you will, or, you know, it also points out passive, um, but not necessarily. I mean, it tells you sometimes that it's too complex, but it doesn't necessarily break it down by like maybe reading level, if you will. Yeah, it's a great um, app and it like color codes the different problems and it's awesome. And like Grammarly, it's not 100% perfect, but it, it's a great, um, you know, to throw it in there and see what it says and then decide which which of those things you need to fix. Yeah, interesting. But so I guess we're in a similar spot in that, you know, again, not, I'm, we're not testing any copy by itself other than, you know, maybe if you're doing some kind of card sorting for like information architecture or something in that vein, but not yeah. not really like a copy of, say, of of an app. Um, so it's good to know that I guess I'm not alone there, but it does seem like that's a, you know, an opportunity to be doing that up front ahead of time before testing it in context of the flow. Um, yeah. You know, I think among the sort of the problematic nature parts of UX research are the, your pool of, uh, participants, right. And especially in the day of the days of remote research. So the, the people who are signing up for user zoom, I, I wonder how typical they are of any one of our users, whatever app you've got. And I think especially for like the weather channel, for example, which is just like, it's not a niche product. It's not, you know, Tinder or something where it's just the small segment of the population and everybody needs to know the weather. Right. So um, I want to do more testing, but the pro the nut that I want to crack is how do I, how do I find those, the people who I really am trying to reach here? right in terms of accessibility like how many how many you know seeing impaired people are on user zoom as an applicant how many people who are from a different country who don't maybe they're speaking english as a third or fourth language and maybe they read okay i'd love to find out you know how accessible is everything to them sure and i don't know how to do that right now yeah, and of course, also outside of the states, are, are you working right. on? Are you localizing content and working on that as well, or is there just complete other? We're not. Doing so, that? so we have many thousands of users around the world, and we know very little about them. And it's just, it's partly, I mean, how many user tests can we run all over the world and find out who are you? Are you expats? Are you English-speaking people? Are you, you know, we we have thousands of users in India. Is it because um, they are great at speaking English or because they are using a different, um, they're just, they just downloaded and never changed the language on their phone, for example, um, or any number of countries where most people are not speaking English as a first language. And in, in Iran, we have a lot of people in Iran for reasons that I don't understand. Um, I think it's just a matter, we don't yet have the means to, or I don't know whether it's a valuable thing to the company, frankly, because I don't know how the advertising is going to work in a place like that. Um, but these are all open questions that I'd love to know that I don't know that they're particularly valuable to the people higher up above me. Got it. So now that you've been doing this a little while, what have you learned? I mean, of course, you said earlier it's about making the complex simple, and that's you know a nice way of saying it, especially in you know, limited character count environments. But, you know, have you learned anything aside from simplifying? Have you learned anything that's been particularly effective that any of us who are out there who probably there's many people who are listening who get involved in writing copy, like with designers that, again, we're 
probably many of us wouldn't consider ourselves professionals in it. Uh, we just sort of do it as part of our job. And so is there any like takeaways that people could put into practice? For our researcher or for an anthropologist looking to get into UX? Well, first for somebody who's like maybe already in the UX space yeah. and they take part in writing copy just as part of their job, but maybe they don't consider themselves right. an expert in it. First thing I would say is that designers or all the designers I've worked with are always advocating for as few words as possible, which I think is partly grounded in the fact that users want to skim, they don't want to read very much, and it's partly grounded in aesthetics. And I think as a writer, what I'm trying to do is use as few words as possible to explain what's going on and to deliver a message. And sometimes that needs more words than just whatever a robotic uh, chatbot would turn out. Um, and so less is not always more as long as you're being as concise as you can. I think that that's part of it. I think that don't go short just because your designer said, you know, we, we only have two lines here on a, on a little thing. Um, second, things you can do, lead with, uh, lead with your action start there because people are in fact skimming most of the time and as they skim the thing you know don't say this is happening this is happening and so you should push this button start with push this button in order to accomplish this result and so they'll at least hopefully see push this button and they'll know that there's an action coming that's one takeaway what's another i would say that for uh, people looking to get into ux for researchers, such as like anthropologists, that uh, writing is, I think, a very logical choice. I think most people tend to think, at least people I encounter online, they think that research is where they should be going. Like there's a, you know, PhD UX research Facebook group that's got over three thousand people in it, right? So there's like a lot of people trying to make this happen, and I think that writing is an excellent place for them to go as researchers. I mean, how much of what we do is actually gathering and looking at data as opposed to writing it up, writing grant proposals, writing the articles, doing uh, peer review, doing um, book reviews, editing our friends' work, that our colleagues, writing syllabi, writing assignments, grading assignments. It, to me, it's much more like the time I spend in the field and the time I spend listening to my interviews or coding or all that stuff. It's eclipsed by the amount of time I spent sitting in front of a computer pecking away at the keys. And I think that so many of us are really highly skilled at this and there's a career to be made. And it's, you know, I think a, a good one. You know, it's, a, it's interesting. You're still working on most of the same teams, frankly, you're in the same environment. Um, um, as a, somebody who's coming out of the creative field, like music, I love being on a team with designers. I feel like those are my people it, in terms of, you know, the business world. Now, we were talking before, I've been into music since I was like four years old, since I could figure out how to work a record player. And I've always just gravitated towards mu music and musicians and artists. And those are the people I want to hang out with. And the punk music and metal and just alternative scenes. And uh, I was really afraid of getting into business because I figured all of the straight suits would be all over the place running the show. And they largely are. But if you're on a team with people who see the world in some ways like yours, um, I mean, for me, it's been really gratifying. I, 
I'm working with designers. I'm using skills I know how to do. Um, and uh, frankly, it's it's pretty good money, if I may say. So, so I would encourage I would encourage all of those anthropologists trying to get into UX research to consider writing. And I would just back that up and say consider things other than just jobs that say UX research because there are many other opportunities, strategy opportunities, product opportunities, even project, you know, that, that analysis, you know, any kind of like analyst role. There, there's all kinds of things that we can be doing, of course, um, that contribute to, you know, similar work as you're saying. But the thing that strikes me about writing, while I agree with you that we spend a lot of time writing and it, it seems like it's a really good fit, it also does seem like that in many places academic writing you know, is sort of privileged, uh, complex writing is privileged to the point where people end up sort of embodying a style that isn't particularly approachable in a lot of cases and certainly not in business and, and even less so in something like a technology product where you often do have limited space, even if you write a little bit more than the designer wants you, it's still probably limited. And so... How did you make the, or maybe you didn't write that way, you know, maybe you didn't succumb to that sort of that problem, but if you did, how did you sort of tame those academic instincts? Um, I would say that I was not the kind of academic writer who wrote in deep academic ease, but that's not to say that I was not writing longer sentences and sort of using 50 cent words a lot. So I can say... A, having worked in northern Ghana, a place where the official English official language is English, but in which some great number of people had little facility in English at all, that you have to learn to communicate with people sort of where they are. You have to be empathetic, right? We hear empathy a lot in this space, and it has it has to be genuine. It's not something you learn at a boot camp. You have to like really be able to put yourself in this other person's space to the extent that you can, but at least understand that they're in a different place than you. Um, I can also say that I did a little bit of public humanity stuff. I did two open source websites as part of my research, and I designed them to be used by people in Ghana. So they'd have to be, I wrote them in English, so they'd have to be uh, literate and online, or at least know somebody who was. But I knew that I needed to create content that was going to make sense to people who are not academics. So A, I was never really that way, not to say that I wasn't long-winded, um, but I think being empathetic, being somebody who wrote in so many different styles, being, maybe this is being a musician too, playing in different styles, you have to be able to like embody different voices, so, and which is true for any if you're going to be a writer in tech, you're going to go from one company to the next and they're going to have their own tone and their own voice and you have to be able to do it. And I think that having a highly developed sense of empathy, which I imagine most of your listeners do if they're anthropologists and especially if they are uh, Westerners who've traveled to the global South and, and engaged with people who are really coming from a different place and require a different type of interaction than you know, the highfalutin sort of white ivory tower, that it's, there's a transition to be made, but it's, it's something you can do if you've done, then you, you've done it already. You just have to do it in this very particular way. 
um, yeah. So you mentioned the word tone in there and the need to sort of understand the tone, like say you get a job at a new company. That was your experience, you know, I think you said at the tech company where they had designers writing in and there was no sort of shared language, no shared kind of style or tone. So, I, you know, this is a pretty abstract question, but it it's like, how do you actually make sense of that? If you're just sort of presented, you know, a bunch of documents could be, you know, on digital, it could be in print, and you're sort of meant to now make sense of it. If this is your first job and you have to kind of figure that out, how do you sort of go about figuring out what that voice is for the organization? Um, if they've already got an established voice or if they don't have an established voice? Well, in the case where a lot of people, are, different people are writing, and so therefore they right. lack really an established one. Right. Um, I think that you need to rely on whatever research you've got about who are the users, right? So, um, so for example, in the first content writing job I had, if I was writing a page for a Ford dealership, I assumed that there was uh, more or less a middle, sort of middle class uh, audience who, and sort of people up and down that ladder of, of, education level, which is really what I'm thinking about in terms of legibility. So that has one kind of tone. They have, you know, Ford trucks and all of, you know, it's American made and you're trying to just be sort of folksy and homey. And then the next assignment might be for a Jaguar or for Aston Martin, which is a, um, it's a luxury brand and it needs to sound sort of like a luxury product. How do you do that? I mean, you look at their you look at their website and you look at other luxury products and you just try to imagine what it sounds like as you're reading it. And then you try to be that person. I mean, that's how I do it anyway. It's almost like trying to do an impersonation or something of understanding who it is. If we have research and we know who our users are, you sort of imagine having a conversation with that person, you know, and one of the, having grown up middle-class white America, like there's a, there are people that I grew up around, but then I also went to college. I also went to Africa. I went to Montana. I would go, you, you have to be able to like communicate to different types of people, which, which is, I mean, I'm kind of a weird person who doesn't love to talk, but I love to interact and communicate. Um, and I, I guess I just think of it in the same way that like, I'm talking to this type of person now and I'm talking to this type of person now. And ideally, you know, I mean, there's no one type of person for any, you know, product, but shoot for the middle. I guess that's what I'm trying to do. And so UX writing is something that, you know, I don't have any stats on this, but I've seen far more job postings. Well, I mean, this goes for UX broadly, right? There's far more job postings than there used to be. But UX writing, it seems like it's emergent. It's mm -hmm. You're starting to see them in greater numbers, whereas before, you know, five, six years ago, you didn't really see many of them. So seeing as you're the first on the, on the, you know, on the show that has this role and maybe you know, you're, you're probably far more of an expert than me in terms of just what's out there and what people, what companies are looking for. So for any of the listeners who think, you know, what they're hearing, they like, and maybe they want to go down this path, what have you noticed in the job space? You know, what is, what are job postings looking for? What kind of credentials and how could listeners position themselves to maybe get one of these roles? 
Great question. So I think uh, some experience with copywriting it was certainly helpful for me. That's something that people are looking for. Um, some knowledge of user experience design, whether it's just sort of understanding flows and uh, journey mapping. I think being able to speak the language seems helpful. Um, journalism is a thing that... so. Like a lot of UX research positions are looking for background in anthropology or human-computer interaction. A lot of the content design and, and writing, they're looking for background in English or journalism and uh, sort of very, what seemed to me a little bit narrowly defined ways. And so I think um, looking for somebody who can write in different styles and in different genres, rather. I don't know if styles is the right way. Somebody... Um, just like with design and research, a portfolio is good. My portfolio is a mess. And uh, I lucked out by finding somebody who was less concerned with my portfolio and more about my uh, capabilities and potential. Um, writing for different different genres. And so a thing that I think would be helpful would be, you know, if you don't have something that you don't, that would be appropriate to show an employer, find a local business that has a website that's a mess. I'm 100% sure that you, it will not be that difficult for you. That It's written by somebody who is well-meaning, who has a great product, and is just not good at writing words. And rewrite it and go to them and say, hey, look, I, I redid your website. It's just the text. They don't have to like reformat anything, really. And just give it to them for free. Um, and then you've got an example of something you did, and you can point to where you fixed it. You know, take your screenshot of what happened first. Where was it? And where is it now? What did you do? What was your process? You know, very much like you would with a research portfolio or a design portfolio. What's the problem and what's the solution and what was, how did you get from A to B? So content writing, copywriting, there are lots of copywriting jobs. I mean, my job, when I got, you know, I went from Middlebury College to an entry-level copywriting job and it was not uh, great psychologically, but it was something I needed to do. And man, this is so weird. Like my whole career has gone, it bounced and bounced and bounced, but it, if I look back, every move I made sort of made the next move possible. And I, so having been a researcher, having been a teacher and professor, and having been a content writer, that all set me up to get to where I am, actually. And I'm not sure I would be here had I not done, had I skipped any of those, you know. So maybe it'll be a little bit of hard work at, initially, but think of content writing. Think of blog, blog. And think about, think really carefully about the words you're choosing and um, demonstrate that you understand, you know, principles, active voice and skimming and headings and bulleted lists and do a little research. UX Writing Collective is a great place to go. Uh, you know, Nielsen Norman has, has plenty of content. And then LinkedIn, like anything else, is just a tremendous resource for for everything related to UX, but with content design as well. So curious, you know, we often talk about resumes and portfolios on, on this show. So you were in a unique position to test the content of your resume and tweak it, right? If you think of, right, I mean, like the resume is like your first foray into almost UX for many people in that they are getting to iterate on it. And it, it in and of itself can be looked at as a little project. Um, but for you, that maybe took on a new life given your writing skills. And so did you approach it that way? 
you know, did you look at it as a project where you were iterating on the copy? I did. And I think I was operating a little bit more out of fear than I was out of like creativity. I was really just, I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm a writer and this is like the first bit of writing they're going to see. So it really has to be tight. It has to, uh, it has to be, you know, have the action words. It has to set a tone. It has to be consistent. It needs to be error free. Like it really, I mean, all resumes need to do that, but boy, if you're a writer and your resume doesn't do those things, forget it. You know, <laughs> for sure. But again, like I said, I was more worried that it was going to, you know, screw up my chances than I was thinking about it and what I would recommend as a positive way of demonstrating your skills. I think they're probably equally effective maybe at the end of the day. And on the portfolio front, you said that you know, I guess it was maybe the most recent hiring manager wasn't that concerned with the portfolio, but did other, did you see any in the UX writing space? Did you see what was being requested of like a portfolio? Is there such a thing as like a writing portfolio that's being requested by some companies? They are often requesting portfolios. Um, and like a lot of UX <clears throat> professionals, it's, I struggle to find the right format and the right way to do it. Do I just make a PowerPoint and put it in Google? Do I make a website? I'm not a visual designer. I'm not a visual person. Um, and so it just looks rough, right? And so a portfolio is something that I think you should have if you want to get into this business. I have a portfolio. It's got a mix of some UX writing, some content writing, um, some of my more accessible academic writing. And it's just sort of a general, I'm a writer, here's my portfolio. Um, and as somebody with a PhD in ethnomusicology trying to get a job at a technology company, it's really important that I find the hiring manager who is A, might have an idea what that means, and B, who would be willing to say, okay, this is a talented human who can learn things quickly and has demonstrated the ability to meet deadlines to please different types of stakeholders. And now we just need to teach them how to use our, you know, software. And that's what I did. I mean, the last job I, at IBM, I interviewed with uh, the, the woman who's the other content writer, and she's a background in journalism and happened to also do some African studies. And we talked about African literature and we sort of hit it off. And she understood that as a PhD holder, I have skills A, B, C, and D, and those will be useful. And that I am, you know, they gave me a test like they do for a lot of uh, researchers. And they said, okay, we want you to write this and we want you to write that. Um, and if you can do it, basically, I, I guess I did it well and, and I got the job. So it was a, I found somebody who understood that a PhD in the humanities was going to be valuable. And then when I got the tests, I performed well enough to get the job, I guess. Great. And so you mentioned a few other resources like, you know, LinkedIn, Nielsen, Norman, so on and so forth. But what about, um, what were you doing in the, in the networking space? Um, you know, were you, were you reaching out and trying to build a network to kind of help get you in somewhere or? Absolutely. Um, just reaching, reaching out to people on LinkedIn and saying hi, interacting with them on their comments. And what I was encouraged to do was just 
cold asked people if they would meet and talk. And it was uh, something I was not comfortable doing. And then I quickly learned that almost everybody I contacted got back to me and volunteered to speak to me for half an hour. And most of those people spoke for far longer than a half an hour. It was really incredible the extent to which people were open to helping for no apparent benefit to themselves other than to just help somebody else out. So I did tons of informational interviews. I was just talking to people, whoever was willing to talk to me whenever they were available. And I was working my schedule around them. And um, there was a lot of really helpful advice on resources to find, especially as I was trying to figure out what is this UX thing. Um, it, I can't say that any one person got me a referral and got me the job, but it was really empowering. It was really, um, like I said, pointing me to the right resources. It was really uh, sort of welcoming me to this larger community that seemed really frightening. Um, and as a result now, whenever somebody reaches out to me, I do everything I can to talk to them as well. It's been really awesome, actually. And shocking because in academia, they tell you the same thing. Like, oh, you're going to a conference, reach out to one or two people. And they're always like, yeah, I have a grant due in three months. I can't talk right now, but get back to me later. And it was the exact opposite in, in this world. It is a friendly community for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so pleased. Really. I'm really happy. This is uh, when I first sort of decided academia was not for me. It was like really a difficult emotional and psychological adjustment of did I fail and what am I going to do now? And um, I realized now I dodged a lot of bullets by not getting jobs I thought I was going to get. And now I'm in with really a great group of people, a great community, super supportive. Um, I love it. I'm really enjoying it. It's great. And I've heard somewhat similar things before, um, you know, about the fear of not being in academia and even the shame of like, I didn't kind of get this job when other people I was in, you know, in a cohort with did. And, um, but I'm glad to hear that it, it's all worked out. I was very glad to hear about the, the UX writing and learn a little bit more from, from you on that. And so I guess maybe in closing, is there anything, you know, that cheer up to that, you know, or just that's happening in the community that you'd like to share? Sure. Um, I'll be speaking at the UX writer conference in February. February 1 and 2 are the dates. I don't have my date yet, but that's coming. That'll be virtual. Um, that's what I've got going on right now. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Carl has PhD. If you search for that, I'm, I'm very findable. Reach me. Reach out to me. I'm happy to talk to people. I'm happy to <clears throat> help any way I can. I'm happy to hear about opportunities somewhere else or speaking or, or whatever. Great. Carl, thanks very much. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much, Matt. It was a pleasure. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.